anyone hear me with this? Is this? Oh yeah, that's all right. I'm, uh, I don't think there's any Italian in me, but I need to move around when I talk. It drives me crazy. Well, it's good to be here. Let's ask God to help, and then we'll look uh, for a few minutes in his word. Father, we thank you for this book of Ephesians. We thank you that you do want to communicate to us. And I pray and ask that as we look in your word, that you might meet us, that we might leave this place, not just being smarter sinners, but change people for your glory. Amen. My name is Malcolm. I grew up in a very noble city. I was born up north in Newcastle on the beautiful Lake Macquarie. But I spent my early informative years in another great metropolis, the great city of Lithgow. And while in this great metropolis, I went to one of the finest institutions known to man, Lithgow High School, for year seven and eight. And it was a, an educational time of bliss. I can't remember too much. In fact, coming back today to a science sort of or chemistry kind of feel, uh, it brought back all these memories of rolling ticker tape carts off the desks and trying to make things bubble. And uh, I remember while I was at school, my favourite subject was music. Now, this is not because I'm particularly gifted. If you hear me sing, I resemble uh, neither Pavarotti nor any of your favourite musical artists. But I do have a passion for making noise. And so I thought, I'll take music. And I heard it was a fairly easy class. And there were certain options. You could do cello. You could do piano. You could do oboe. And all of these instruments that sounded kind of complicated. And they sounded kind of disciplined. You actually needed to memorise those every good boy desires fruit or something. You had to learn to read these music and that just wasn't my cup of tea. I said, what else is there? And they said, well, I was looking for something more like the drums. You know, that they probably read music too, but really they just bang stuff. And I was thinking, all right, just give me one of those. But in the end, I, there was no room in the drum class, so off I went to learn the guitar. And everybody knows guitar is kind of a cool instrument. You can take the guitar to the beach. You can't take an oboe to the beach. You know, you can, you can strum along on a train. You can be cool anywhere with a guitar. In fact, I often just think of just picking up a guitar and walking around with one. But, uh, but I decided to learn the guitar and the... the it started off pretty well. We, me and my mates were pretty serious. There was about 20 of us in the class. And while we were there, the teacher would take us through the different chords that you had to play. So he would show, you, show us his fingers and he would say, this is D. And we'd all put our fingers on D. And then we'd get the, the I don't even know what it's called, the little the pick. Okay, fantastic. And, and we, we would strum. And, and, you know, Michael Rowe, your boat ashore, whatever the, the classic was we were playing that day. All right, and so, so we, would, we would have the chords down and then we would have the strumming. And I realised before too very, uh, very long, in fact, that I was actually pretty good at playing chords. I could get my fingers in the right spot. I've got these little, sort of little piggy fingers, but I could actually get them in the right spot. I could play the D and I could stretch my hands and play these other chords. The problem I discovered was that I couldn't actually play the chord and strum at the same time. Now, I don't know, have you ever done that exercise where you, you, pat, no, you pat your head and you, oh, you know, I don't even know what you do, but you, you do something, but it requires 
different skills and that was how it was with music. And I just wasn't, I just couldn't make my left hand work and my right hand work at the right time. I knew what I should do with my left hand and, and you know, strum the, the, I mean, do the chord. But with my right hand, I just couldn't get it in time with what this was meant to be doing. And it's funny, when it comes to life, what we're going to be looking at in the book of Ephesians is something very similar in the sense that many of us here, we come along to public meeting and we go to our church or we might be involved in a Bible study and we hear the teachings of Jesus and we hear the teachings of Scripture and in our mind we we say, okay, I understand that and I cognitively get my head around what I need to do But when it comes to the actual strumming of that in everyday life, we struggle to make the two, the the combining of the two. We, We have a hard time playing the chords of heaven and strumming the sounds of earth. And so what we're going to do as we go through the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to give us, in this letter, he's going to give us a way that we can think right about things of heaven and things of a eternal nature and he's going to say then as a result of that this is how it impacts the here and the now. Just as a very brief thing and I don't know if you can read that uh, if you can, good luck to you Uh, but basically this is how Paul structures his book. In chapters 1 to 3 he's going to focus on the chords of heaven as it were and he's going to theologically reflect on God and God's agenda And it's going to be a very interesting thing for us because Paul is going to write a letter to Christians and he's going to spend the first half of the book thinking about God before he even gets to what that means to us. Chapters 1 to 3, he's going to think about heavenly perspectives. He's going to place an emphasis on right thinking. Now, while some of these things are going to be true in chapters 4 to 6, as we move to chapters 4 to 6, and we'll do that later on, obviously, uh, as the weeks go by. We'll be looking more at the practical applications. How do you strum, if you know the chords right, you know your, your thinking right, how does that affect the here and now? We're going to look at some of the practical applications. And in these chapters, he's going to emphasise earthly realities, not just what, what, what's going on in heaven, what should our attitude be towards eternal things, what should be our attitude towards now. And there's going to be some theology there as well, I don't want to make it too clear a distinction, but in general he's going to be focused about here and now. And then finally, there's going to be an emphasis on right living. Again, he's not just going to leave us with a good mind and knowing a little bit about theology. His interest is that we live as changed people. So living for heaven while living on earth. Well, let's go back uh, just for just a few minutes and find out a little bit more about this city of Ephesus. Now, in ancient times, Ephesus was a very important city. Here you can see it roughly. You've got the big boot of Italy there and you go across a few countries and you end up in modern-day Turkey and where the ancient city of Ephesus was. And you can still go there. Uh, the city's called Kusadasi. It's, it, used to be five, it used to be right on the shoreline. Actually, it was a port city where people would come in slightly up a river, but they would enter into a, a largish harbour and they would get to the city of Ephesus. Uh, over a period of time, the, the river sort of washed away and it's about five kilometres from the ocean. But in its day, it was a great city, 250,000 people. It was a large city and it was known for several things. It was known 
Uh, one of the things it was known for was its religion. Here's a, a couple of things about its religions. It was known because it had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, this biggest structure that they've had to, to redraw because they're not quite sure what it looked like. But we have uh, Antipater and other writers early on who comment on the magnificence of this structure. And this was really the centrepiece of Ephesus' life. If you read Acts 19, Acts 20, you'll read about Paul as he would go into this, this city. There were people selling all sorts of idols and it was generating a lot of business. Also big in this city were mystery religions. Uh, what are mystery religions? I don't know. That's why we call them mystery religions. Uh, there, was, there was religions that would go on in places like uh, the Temple of Artemis and other places where they would exercise all sorts of magic. And you get a little bit of that again in the book of Acts as they go to the city of Ephesus. And then lastly, but not insignificantly, they had the imperial cult. By the end of the, the first century, people worshipping the emperor. And here is Caligula, also known in history as Little Boots. And uh, he was a man who wanted to be worshipped. And in the city of Ephesus, that was... Uh, people still hear me? Oh, okay. I get too excited. All right, I'm going to stand still. I'll try my best not to move. But uh, Caligula and others were there and emperor worship was quite big. And so Paul is actually going to address that a little bit in his letters as well. So what we have here, we have a religious city, but we also had a city that had a Christian presence. It had a Christian presence. Two of the great Christians were attached to the city of Ephesus. The apostle Paul was, but who else was known to be associated with Ephesus? Does anyone know? Uh, Apollos? Nope. John. John the Elder, the guy who wrote Revelation. He was the bishop or the leading pastor in the city of Ephesus until he upset uh, Domitian and they exiled him over to the Isle of Patmos, which is probably an hour or so away back in the olden days on the boats. Uh, so he was also there. So they had many Christians. In fact, when Paul turns up in Acts 19, there were already people there who had believed, perhaps from the day of Pentecost. And it was a Christian city. In fact, uh, people have tradition placing Mary, the mother of Jesus, actually spending her last days there. But certainly there was a, a presence there, a Christian presence. Well, let's jump into the letter itself and look at uh, some of the facts. Today what we're going to do, we're going to just look for a few minutes at the opening of the letter. And as I said, the, the first half of the letter is going to focus on the issues of heaven. And in these verses, particularly verses 3 to 14, he's going to give us a Godward focus as we begin to go through this passage. And he's going to talk about God's purposes for us. So as we open up here, it begins in verses, verse, verses 1 to 2 with an introduction to the author and to his audience. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus. Now here begins one of the challenges of this book. Uh, if you do a, any study of this book, and you even notice in the bottom of many of your Bibles, it will say, some early manuscripts do not have Ephesus. And I've got one of those manuscripts uh, up for you here on the screen. That you can't, can't really read too much, but you've got to trust me on this one. This is the Chester Beatty Papyri, also known as P46. It's a very significant manuscript in regards to where we get our Greek Bibles. And most of our uh, manuscripts, we actually get an eclectic text, we get different manuscripts, but this particular manuscript is one of the most significant. And uh, it's interesting is this manuscript, this very important manuscript, an early manuscript, opens up 
It just reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God to they that are holy and then it has in brackets uh, in the critical editions in Ephesus or in Epheso. It's not in this manuscript, this significant manuscript, nor is it in several other manuscripts that are very significant. What are we to do with this? What are we to make of this? Well, it's interesting. A lot of traditions, we have very early tradition that this writing that we call the book of Ephesians was indeed written by Paul. There's not much doubt on that. In fact, you have Ignatius, you have Clement of Rome, you have different people writing very early on that Paul wrote this letter, but we don't have Ephesus in the title. Now, having said that, if you could uh, see this uh, at all, up the very top there's an inscription above it that says, To the Ephesians. So even though in this very important manuscript we don't have the term in Ephesus found in the opening verses, it is even there early on in the tradition in the title. Probably what happens was that this letter was written as a circular letter. That is, a letter that was written to one place, but was actually one that would be handed around to many different churches. You have an example of this in the book of Colossians. It will talk about passing uh, this letter and checking and looking with the letter that was sent to those in Laodicea. There, was a, there were letters that were passed around in Asia Minor in these churches. They wouldn't just hold on and say, this is our book, you're not sharing it. No, they would pass it around, they would often make copies. And here, most people think that Ephesus was probably the first place that Tychicus, the, the guy delivering it, kind of a, a bummer of a name, but Tychicus, uh, this guy, he, he got the letter from Paul and the, probably the first place he went to was the city of Ephesus. Hence, this became the tradition that later on everyone would associate this book with Ephesus. Either that or people think that the letter eventually ended up in Ephesus and was kept with the church at Ephesus. Whatever the place is, I think it's a fairly safe bet to say this was a circular letter. Now, I think it's safe to say that on a textual basis, but also if you look at the content. Now, if you know anything about Paul's letters, usually Paul writes with a very, very specific purpose in mind. Uh, That is, when he writes to Galatians, for example, there's a very distinct problem in the church. So he'll address the church, he'll start off, Paul, an apostle, to those in the church at Galatia, g'day, good to see you, and then, you know, Paul, he changes gear and he says, you crazy Galatians, who has bewitched you with this? He gets off, you know, fiery as Paul does and he jumps onto a couple of issues and it is fantastic reading. Okay, and then you get the 2 Corinthians. Somebody evidently in the, the church in Corinth was having a bit of a go at Paul's apostleship and Paul starts off nicely and he gives a benediction, I mean a, rather a blessing up front and then he says, hey there are people calling me saying that I'm not an apostle. If anyone could be called an apostle it's me. And he gets stuck into them. 1 Corinthians, the same thing. Most of Paul's letters you find that there's some sort of axe that he's grinding or there's some sort of problem that he's trying to solve. Not so much the case with Ephesians. You don't do that if you're writing a circular letter and that's probably what we've got here. And so he opens up with just an introduction to himself and to his audience. And then, in verses 3 to 14, he's going to do what many of us would never do and he's going to write, in verses 3 to 14, one long, unending sentence. Okay, your English Bibles and your English translators have been so kind to you. They've put lots of commas in, they've put lots of full stops, they've made the grammar nice. Paul, 
He starts off in verse 3 like an enthusiastic kid and he gets excited and he doesn't stop. It's like the domino starts and Paul just keeps pushing them down one after the other. It's like when I get home and I ask my daughter, in fact, uh, I'll ask my daughter a question, I'll say, Bella, how was kindergarten? How's your friend Zoe? And I'll ask a very specific question, how Zoe was. And she'll start talking about, well, you know Zoe got me that bracelet. Well, that bracelet broke last night when I was in the bath because Adam, he was annoying me because he's the most annoying little brother that I've got. And it's because he had the shampoo and the la di da di da di da di da di da And I asked, how was her friend Zoe? That's a little bit how it is with Paul. I call him the king of the subordinate clause. Okay? He, he loves to start and he, he doesn't often finish. In fact, if you ever do the study of the book of Romans... Paul breaks all the preaching rules. He gets to chapter 1, verse 8, and he says, first, I thank my God, and then he never gets into a second in the whole book. Okay? And so, but he's the apostle. He can do what he likes. All right. But here he goes. He's enthusiastic, and he opens up with giving us a glimpse of heaven. He takes us out of this world. He doesn't take us to look at ourselves primarily in this context. He takes us to look at what is the big picture, or what is... God's major overriding purpose for humanity. Now, to break down these uh, 11 verses, we, we can do it, and there are certain structural markers that, that people use, and then there are also chronological markers and uh, even other markers that we use. But basically, without pushing it too much, there are three movements that go on in this chapter. First of all, in verses 3 to 6, we're going to get an emphasis on God the Father and his agenda for humanity. We're going to discover that he has a plan to create a people for himself. Secondly, in verses 7 to 12, we're then going to look at God the Son, Jesus Christ, accomplishes that by making a people for the Father. God purposes to have a people for himself. Jesus Christ accomplishes that through his work of dying and rising again. And then thirdly, we will look at God the Holy Spirit and his involvement in the life, of, in the way of providing a people for God as he takes those secured by Christ and he keeps them until the day of redemption when God will complete all things. So that is the basic outline of where we are going. So let's move to the first uh, few verses here. First of all, we're going to discover that in this opening section, God the Father initiates a plan to have a people for himself. God is going to initiate a plan to have a people for himself. It opens up here and as I've said, uh, it, it begins with a focus on God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Uh, And here, verses 3 and 4 really provide a synopsis of the whole book. In verse 3, he gives us a Godward focus on praise God because he's done this. He called us to be a people. And then verse 4, he says, the reason is that we are a people, we should live holy and blameless lives. God does this, your response is that. But he opens up here and he emphasizes clearly on what God has done. And there is a bit of a play on words here, both in Greek and also in English. In uh, English, I've got the NIV here. It starts off with the praise be. The term is actually blessed be. Uh, It's related here. It would say blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. 
Okay, can you hear the, the common word? Blessed, blessed, blessings. That is the common phrase. This is uh, an Old Testament idea. In fact, he's probably borrowing this from his Jewish roots. It was not uncommon in the Psalms, this, this term they call the Berachah, where they, will, they would shout, shout out, Blessed is the name of the Lord. And then they would give the reasons why. Blessed is the name of the Lord who has forgiven us for our sins, who, who has delivered us from our enemies. And that's similar to what Paul does here. But why is he blessed? Well, first of all, he chooses a people for himself. He chooses a people for himself. God chose this, these people who we're going to refer to as the church. And it's interesting, as we make our way through this passage, we'll notice that the Father's activities are primarily in eternity past, where Jesus' involvement is in immediate history. And then the Holy Spirit will keep us until the culmination of history. But here the Father's work goes on in eternity past as he chooses a people for himself. Look at verse 4. He chose us in him, Christ, before the creation or before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 5. It said, He predestined us. Verse 11 says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined. Uh, It's interesting. The idea of election, God choosing people, is something that's very foreign to us. And for many of us, we often get to an issue like this and rather than hearing Paul saying, Praise, praise, blessed, blessed, election, God is good, we say, Praise, blessed election. Let's have an argument. Let's get a debate. Let's talk about what God's will has to do with our will. Okay, now, I've got no qualms in talking about that and at a philosophical level and at a theological level. That's a, a conversation worth having. But it's interesting, that's not Paul's concern. Paul doesn't have to defend God here. He says that in God's sovereign plan, in his heavenly purpose, God chooses for himself a people. May he be blessed. May he be praised. And he moves on. It's very interesting to me that often for us, we we think, well, why does he choose some and and not others? Perhaps the question we need to be asking ourselves is why did he choose us at all? I remember a few years ago when I was uh, doing some study overseas, uh, I was in America and the the game that the, the Americans would love to play was basketball and I'm more of a footy sort of a bloke but I, I had a go at basketball and I learned the basic rules and uh, you know you can't really put your shoulder into somebody unless you're doing something and you know and it was fantastic I was kind of a, as you can see probably of the uh, shorter stature and so uh, it was a you had to be really quite smart about how you played the game I was still a bit a bit of a left chord, right, strum, kind of struggle in basketball. Uh, I'd get the ball and sort of want to whistle it off like a footy pass, but never mind. But I remember we'd play on Friday afternoons and before we would play, they would pick out two blokes, and normally the tallest fellas, it was always unfair for us challenge people, and they would pick the two tallest blokes and say, okay, you get to choose the players. And so you'd always be sitting there on the bench Waiting, there was, there was always ten of us, so it was always going to be five on five. You always knew you were going to be picked. But there was always a certain angst as to when am I going to get picked. And I remember once coming to play basketball and there were two girls who wanted to join in and we said, well, that's fair enough. And so we, we start, they start picking the sides and then I, I notice that there were only three people who hadn't been picked. 
two girls and me. Okay, and, and that was all right. And the two girls got picked before me. Now, I could have sat there and had a whinge and say, why did you choose that person? Why did you choose... Hey, he's the captain. He can choose whoever he wants for whatever reason he wants, whether it's his notion of what they might uh, contribute to his cause or how they might... I don't know. All I know is in this passage, God chooses people. Why did he choose you if you were a member of his body and have believed in him? I don't know. Why does he choose the weak people, people like me? I don't know. Paul leaves it in mystery here and simply says that God is to be praised because he chooses in his wisdom. Way back in eternity past, before you were even born, before anything was created, God came up with a purpose to choose for himself a people. God the Father also adopted people in love. While we don't have time to fully go through this, uh, again, verse um, the end of verse 4 and start of verse 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. The idea that when you uh, come to trust in Christ, it's, it's God bringing you into his family. He adopts you. He invites you with all the legal benefits that that has. And we know some of the benefits that we'll talk about here uh, that come through Jesus. But one of the benefits is that we are part of God's family. This is a hard one for us to get our hands around. I always think of, yeah, I'm a member of God's family, but it's like the long lost cousin kind of, kind of deal. But this was brought home to me uh, when I started serving at uh, the great church that I'm involved with, St. Barnabas. At our, uh, when I joined up the, at the church and I was commissioned in prayer to serve at the church, uh, Ian Powell Uh, He prayed this in his prayer of commissioning. Uh, Concerning me, he prayed to God. He said, God, look in mercy on your son and servant, Malcolm Gill. Now, when he said, look upon, uh, have mercy upon uh, your son, and then he mentioned my name, I I was kneeling, but I almost fell over. Your son, don't you mean your son Jesus? I thought he was going, you always say your son Jesus, but your son Malcolm? Okay, or your son Stoney, or your daughter Sam. You know, we often don't think like that. But right through the Bible, there's this familial language. There is the language of a family and close relationship. And that is one of the things that Paul praises God for here. Praise God that he has brought us and adopted us into his family. How he treats his son Jesus Christ is how he treats you and how he views you as his, his son or his daughter. You know, I have three siblings. One is Malcolm, I have three siblings. Debbie, Deidre, Dallas. And I always used to think, am I adopted? <laughs> but then I read, read in the Gospel of Mark and I felt better because I, I read that Jesus had brothers. There was Jesus, Joseph, Jude, James and Simon. Okay, so I understood how that felt. But the idea, I, I felt like, Debbie, Deidre, Dallas, maybe I'm adopted, but you know what? I, even if I was, I've always felt part of my family. I am part of my family. And that's how it is with God. And that's why one of the reasons we, we praise him. In his sovereignty and his plan, he built for himself a people of which he made us part. But next, in verses 7 and 12, God the Son secures a people for the Father. 
This was all part of God's plan in eternity past. But how does it come to fruition? It comes to fruition with the appearing of Jesus. He says, in him we have, first of all, redemption. The idea of redemption was being set free from something or released from something. Israel was redeemed from Egypt. They were set free. They were released. We were redeemed, we find elsewhere, from the pit of sin and the bondage that held us down. Christ redeemed us so that we are no longer slaves to sin and slaves to the law. We've been released. The Son has provided redemption. Verse 7b also talks about in him that through his blood we have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And we're going to talk next week. We're going to move into chapter 2. We're going to spend two weeks there looking at what it means, this work of redemption, as God takes us as spiritually dead and cold people and he makes us to be the church, to be God's people here on earth. But he provides forgiveness and he does so through the cross. And then in verses 9 to 12, we discover that God the Son reveals and accomplishes God's mysterious plan. And we hear the word mystery that turns up in verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. God makes it known. It's like um, you're putting his cards on the table. It's no longer a mystery. You know, if you were to go to Ephesus back in the day and go to the, the, the temple of Artemis that we saw earlier on, you would have discovered that it was all about mystery. It was all about intrigue. It was all about secret things. Well, here he says it's no mystery to us. He says Christ has come. He is the revealer. He is the one who makes for God a people for himself to fulfil God's plan. And he does this. Why? This is a reoccurring theme. Look at the end of verse 12. He does it for the praise of his glory. That same phrase or the glorious grace, praise of his glorious grace turns up in verse 6 and chapter ends in verse 14 to the praise of his glory. Jesus comes and he serves God the Father gloriously by providing a people for the Father. And then finally we move to God the Holy Spirit. Here the Holy Spirit is involved in the work of God in salvation. God the Holy Spirit guarantees a people for the Father. He guarantees a people for the Father. There are two things that are interesting here in this passage about the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is referred to as one who seals. Uh, he, he, his presence in your life shows and seals, if you're in Christ, that you are truly a child of God. And he says it's a seal. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen any of those old movies, but you see, a, get a... I don't know if they even... Go to the Blockbuster and it wouldn't even be on the seven day rentals. It would be like the one year rentals and don't ever return it ones. But yet you get a movie like Ben-Hur. Okay, so old, I don't even know if it's on DVD. But you get a, a great old movie like that and you watch the old Roman style. Whenever they wanted to seal something, they had the, the hot wax, they could use that one. But often if you see a movie like Ben-Hur, they'll give them something and they'll say, give us, give us your seal. And they'll grab the tablet and they get their big ring. And they, and they punch their seal and it's got that ownership on it. And they, they take it and they deliver it to whoever. Okay, but the idea is that seal represents ownership. And that's how it is with the role of the Holy Spirit. When you trust in Christ and you, be, you become part of his family, 
the Holy Spirit seals you until the day of redemption. In fact, that's the second point here. It says that the Holy Spirit, his presence is a guarantee of things to come. The Greek word that is used for deposit is the word arabone. In modern Greek, the term arabona means engagement ring. It is a wedding ring, but it means engagement ring. And the idea of giving somebody an engagement ring is the idea that there is a promise attached that one day, yes, when we get our, you know, all the money and the honeymoon organised, it will be a wedding. That's the idea of the arabone in the ancient culture. It was the sign that the deposit is laid down. This is now secure. Why do we praise God? We praise Him because in eternity past, He had a plan for us. The Father purposed a people for himself. Secondly, we've discovered that the Son secures this people in our present experience. And thirdly, we look at the Holy Spirit. He guarantees that this will take place. Now, so what difference does this make for us today? Well, I think the very obvious application of food for our thought is simply this. This text has been entirely focused about thinking right about God. Before you can strum a guitar, you need to learn what a chord is. Before you can really live well and honouring and pleasing to God and to Christ, you need to get your head around who he is and what he has done. I would encourage you to take away as an application. Go home and Pull out this passage, whether it's catching the train home today, whether you've got a little bit of time, uh, maybe tonight or whenever, and just think through all of the good things that God has done and give him praise. Pretty simple. This passage is not so much about what you should do as much as it is a model of what you should do. not telling you what you should do, but it's modelling what you should do. Be thankful and praise God for his character his wisdom in planning in eternity past have a people for himself for fulfilling that in the person of Jesus and thanking him that we have hope for the future but for secondly oops rather finished up there the second thing I wanted to encourage you with is today if you are not in Christ if you don't know that you have a relationship with God all of this talk about God's plans in eternity past and all of the good things about uh, the hope that we have in the future will mean very little to you You have a chance in this community with the EU and public meetings and the people you might know here who are Christian to talk to somebody on how you can have this assurance and be part of God's marvellous plan in history and I'd encourage you to talk about that. So I want to encourage you with those thoughts. Come again next next time and we'll move forward and we'll get past just the one sentence of Paul and we'll get into lots more.